Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to the morning briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is our slogan because it's what we do. And I'll tell you why we do it because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn the uniform and knows what it's like to have taken it off that last time. For example, 13 years in the Navy for myself, 13 years in the Army for Jake. Add the two of us together, we're a 26-year E-12, and that is very impressive if you know anything about the rec system. Our next guest, he wasn't in the Navy or in the Army. In fact, he was in the Air Force as a pilot of the F-16, and now he is a best-selling author. Please welcome Dan Hampton to the show. Dan, good morning. How are you doing today? Good morning. Thanks. The sun is adequate rating for a change, so I'm happy. Yeah, you know what? Same thing here that we're dealing with. So first off, Dan, before we talk about your amazing new book, Chasing the Demon, uh, and all the other work you've done since leaving the Air Force, let's talk about your time in the Air Force. Where are you from? When did you join? And I already mentioned it, but what did you do while you were serving in the Air Force? Uh, well, I, I grew up on the East Coast, but I went to college in Texas, and then after I finished that, I got into the Air Force and went to flight school and became a fighter pilot eventually. Spent uh, the next 20 years uh, pretty much all over. I spent a lot of time in Europe and the Middle East, both Gulf Wars. Uh, I went through the U.S. Air Force Fighter Weapons School. I generally had an exceptional time, did everything I wanted to, and decided 20 years in one day was enough and got out. 20 years in one day is most certainly enough. 13 years was enough for me. But yeah, 20 years, totally understand that. When you think back to that point in time, when you retire, when you decide, I love the F-16, I love flying, I love doing all this stuff, but it's time for me to leave the United States Air Force, what sticks out in your memory of that period of time in your life? Well, I was happy that I went on my own terms, and I I think you know what I mean. Uh, Again, I was was. There's no other place in the world where you could fly fighter jets like that except in the military. But in the Air Force, at least, you know, when you get above the rank of lieutenant colonel, maybe colonel, you don't fly anymore. They they have some silly idea that you'd better serve the military sitting behind a desk at the Pentagon, and that just wasn't for me. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that from senior officers in the Navy pilots and Air Force pilots where uh, they'll basically pay lip service to the fact that they're pilots by making sure that they meet the minimum uh, required amount of flight hours, but they're not doing anything operational anymore. So uh, was that a big part of the reason for you retiring and moving on? And, and what was your plan when you retired from the Air Force? That, that, was, a, that was a big part of it. I, I had been part of a, the F-22 program and was a little bit disillusioned. Uh, with that entire process and the, and the senior leadership, if you want to call them that. So I figured, you know, uh, enough is enough. Uh, a lot of guys, and you know this, they're trepidatious about, about getting out of the military because that's all they've ever known and they're not sure what they're going to do. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I knew that I could find something and I could deal with it. So uh, that's what I did. A lot of military pilots end up going on to be pilots in the civilian world, whether flying freight or flying uh, airliners, private jets. Uh, Is that something that you ever did or something that you ever considered doing, or were you pretty much done flying when you left the Air Force? 
No, I still love to fly, and I, I went ahead and got an airline transport rating just in case. But I, I wanted a break, so I, I bought a really big sailboat, and I went down to the Caribbean for a couple of years. And uh, after after a few years of that and trying to grow a ponytail, which uh, didn't come into too well, <laughs> I, I went into the private military world, uh, went back over to the Middle East, for a few years as a merc I'm sorry, a private contractor, not mercenary. We can't really say that. Uh, and uh, then I, I, I sort of blundered into writing. I was very happy it worked out the way it did. It was not intentional, um, but uh, but it did. And it, I, you know, I got to say, I love the lifestyle. It sounds like Dan Hampton. You had some bumps in the road, and that's who we're speaking to: former United States Air Force pilot, current best-selling author Dan Hampton, author of the new book *Chasing the Demon*. It sounds like there were some bumps in the road from uh, the minor to uh, not being able to grow a ponytail. I don't even know if I can. My wife won't let me grow my hair out long. But uh, you know, when you think back to the trials and tribulations after leaving the Air Force, not knowing exactly what you wanted to do, uh, finding your way through it, what would you recommend to people who are going through something? Similar, whether it's uh, you know an Air Force pilot getting out or a, a basic airman who just finished their uh, four-year contract and is leaving the Air Force or whatever branch of service, what do you think is the biggest takeaway that you can give to them about uh, working through the difficulties when you get out? Marry money. <laughs> no, just just kidding. Uh, you know what? Everybody needs to realize that that they can do this, whatever this is. And you may be, you know, you may be a little uh, apprehensive about it, but you know, after serving in the military, it's nothing you can't do. And I would say, don't ever forsake a chance of happiness, you know, in the name of fear. Don't take a a job you think you're going to hate just because you think you have to. I mean, figure it out in advance. Plan. We're all really good at planning, you know. Plan to the extent that you can, and then take the leap. You know, it's a great big world out there. Go see it. And as you mentioned, you got into, uh, it sounds like a number of different things after you got out, uh, working as a, a contractor, getting your commercial airline rating and all of that good stuff. But you ended up moving on to the field of literature. Tell me about your background as far as writing. I mean, did you ever enjoy writing when you were in high school or college or while you were in the military? Or is this a recent development for you? Well, I, I did enjoy writing early on. Uh, when I was in college, my, my first degree was in architecture, so not a whole lot of writing there. And then, uh, you know, as you know, the military, you get mired in writing OPRs, reports, technical stuff. So I, I really didn't do much of it while I was, I was flying fighters. I was, I was too busy. Um, you know, I, I, I really don't know how I was so fortunate that, that it made sense for me to do it. I think it's kind of like flying or any other skill that, you know, people have. You can develop it, and you certainly should, but you've got you've to be born with something. You can't just start from scratch, if, if you get what I'm saying. And when you figure out what that is, whatever that is, I would say, use it. Do it. You know, it's a, it's a chance to be on your own. It's a chance to be independent. It's a chance to, to call the shots in your own life. So don't pass that up. Of course, Dan, you've found success in the literary world, but how did you first enter it? What was the aha moment where you realized you wanted to be a writer or that you were good at writing if there even was one? Uh, the aha moment came uh, in southern Iraq. I, as I said, I'd been a mercenary for, I'm sorry, a contractor for a couple of years, and I had another close call, got hurt, 
and figured, you know what, I've got a new baby. I'm going to, I'm going to write some of my life down for this kid in case something happens to me. And it just happened to be very, very good timing. I, I ended up with the same editor at Harper Collins that did Chris Kyle's book. And that was very popular, you know, five, six years ago. And, and I, I was frankly surprised when after we were finished, he said, Hey, do you got anything else? <laughs> And I said, well, you know, as a matter of fact, I do. And, and we've just, we've never stopped from there. We've put out, uh, you know, a book a year for six years now. That's a lot of writing. And, and as someone who's, I, I think, I think of myself as an okay writer. I write articles on ConnectingVets.com. I've never uh, taken on anything quite like a book. When you first got started doing that, was there any worry like, oh man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to actually get this done? Or was it something that you were confident in your abilities in from the start? Well, I, I have to I have to say, like a lot of folks in the military, self doubt is not has never been much of an issue. <laughs> uh, and and I, and I don't mean to sound cocky with that. I'm just saying confidence, and the military is very good for building that. Confidence is is really important. It never occurred to me that once I got into this, that I wouldn't uh, succeed. Now that said, boy, I had a lot to learn because there's you know it's a different way of thinking, a different way of writing. Uh, I went back to, to school and got another master's degree, you know, in, in, in a, uh, a master's of arts, which, which helped immensely, um, you know, but, but it's a business and I had to learn that and the, and the process of actually writing a book, you know, you pick one up on a bookshelf and, and you don't really think about all the work that goes into it, but it takes me a year to a year and a half to write each book. And, you know, that that's just the research and the writing. It doesn't really count the editing and all the other stuff that goes into it. So it's very complicated, but very fulfilling. And the, as I said earlier, the best part about it is my time is my own. And actually putting out a book a year, that's that's a pretty rapid clip for most authors. I mean, I think about uh, one of my favorite authors, Eric Larson. He gets a book out once every five years or so or something like that. So uh, do you think that your military background has actually helped you in being uh, more efficient than maybe some other writers are in getting out books on an annual basis? Yeah, I think that's a lot to do with it. I I can uh, I manage time, you know, very well, like like most military folks do. And, uh, and, you know, you, you've got to be organized, you've got to set priorities, all those things that we sort of take for granted during military life translate very well to this sort of thing. You know, you've got to be kind of a self-starter. Nobody's going to stand over me and say, you have to write this many pages per day. Uh, so in that respect, the military was a, a very good training ground. We're speaking with Dan Hampton, best-selling author and retired United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. He was a fighter pilot in the United States Air Force. And when you look through uh, the books that you've written, Dan, I start to notice a theme. You've, of course, got your memoir, Viper Pilot, a memoir of air combat. You've got Lords of the Sky, Fighter Pilots and Air Combat, The Hunter Killers, uh, about your experiences in F-16, Wild Weasel Pilot, The Flight. I, I guess write about what you know, right? Did you plan to, uh, to write so much about the, uh, the, the pilot community and the community that you were such a big part of and a community that you obviously love? No, not at all. I, I, wanted, I actually wanted to write fiction, uh, and I did. I put out a, a novel called The Mercenary, uh, which, which did very well. Uh, but I was surprised to learn early on that nonfiction actually sells much better than fiction, unless you happen to be Nelson DeMille or Tom Clancy, which I'm not. Uh, and, and it's a collaborative effort. You know, when, when I have the advantage of an editor at 
at the largest publisher in the world saying, I think you should think about writing this. <laughs> you know, that sort of takes the decision out of it. And we figure out the best way to get whatever this is across. And then I, I write it. So it's, it's an enviable position. I'd like to branch out a little more, but I can't argue with, with the rationale and reasoning behind it. Or the success. And you've had some pretty great success with the books that you've written, uh, including your novel, The Mercenary, the ones I just mentioned, and your newest book, Chasing the Demon, which is interesting. And I just mentioned uh, Eric Larson, one of my favorite authors, who just wrote a book about the uh, the sinking of the Lusitania, which a lot of people thought, well, there's not much new to be told about that story. Of course, he found it. Chasing the Demon is about the efforts of pilots to break the sound barrier, which I didn't think there was much new to learn about the subject, but it, it appears that I was quite wrong about that, huh? Well, thank you for saying so. That's that's kind of the point with this, and that's one of the things I love to do is to find things that, as you said, we think we've been told the whole story or we've been taught it a certain way in school or, you know, God forbid, seen a movie about it, so it must be true. And, uh, you know, that's rarely the case, and I love to dig around and uncover things that uh, a lot of people may not know a whole lot about. And when it comes to the breaking of the sound barrier, where I, I mean, I think if you have, ask the average person if they have any idea, they're going to throw out some names that they've heard in the past and uh, hope that they get it right. They're going to talk about Chuck Yeager. They're going to talk about all the other people. What do you think is the most interesting thing about the story of those pilots that, that we just don't know about? Well, uh, the most there's a, there's a lot of interesting things. Uh, one of the most inspirational things is I think something that we all today in this in this environment and this increasingly sort of divided ill-mannered you know society that we we seem to be evolving into is that there was a time and could still be a time when there are genuinely admirable people out there that we can that we can look to despite what we see and hear about all the time because we're inundated with bad news these days there is some good news and and one of the things i i I get asked frequently is do you think that people today still have it in them to do something like this and my answer is of course uh, a yes because you know do people make the times or do times make the people however it works out america is still uh the, the most powerful the greatest country in the world and the people that made it so are still here. And if need came, you know, to, to do something spectacular or extraordinarily dangerous, like uh, break the sound barrier or go to Mars or whatever's next, then we would do it. And I think people need to remember that we still have that potential as a, as a country. Chasing the Demon, the name of the book, of course, the demon is the sound barrier. Why were pilots naming it something so uh, fearsome and something that might sound like you don't want to mess with it? Well, the demon is actually the challenge. It's it's whatever the next challenge is that's out there, you know, just over the horizon, on the other side of the cloud, you know, whatever, however you want to phrase it. The demon is the next thing that we are obsessed with, that we we feel drawn to try to conquer. And in this case... You know, it was it was the speed of sound, uh, and in fact, there really is no physical sound barrier. There never was. Uh, I've been supersonic thousands of times, like like all modern fighter pilots have, and it's it's a non-event. In fact, it was a non-event for Chuck Yeager. He said so in his report. The real challenge was getting up to Mach one. It's what's called the transonic region, and that's where. There were controllability issues and, and other problems that, you know, were putting planes out of control and killing pilots. 
let me ask you, is it actually somewhat similar to when you're driving a car and, you know, when you first start off, you can kind of feel the car often struggling with that uh, uh, initial get up to speed. But then, you know, going through a speed limit, going past 55 to 60, there's really no difference. Is it something similar to that for a pilot? In a way. I mean, it's just a number, you know, it, the, the, there's not a black circle that appears <laughs> from your peripheral vision and music, of course, doesn't play. It's it's really it's really, like I said, a, a non-event. It was very important, though, because it, it marked a point that we had evolved to aerodynamically, uh, engine technology-wise, you know, to, to be able to get to that point. The, the existence of, of supersonic flight uh, had been well-known, and I was surprised at how far back it went. You know, I put in the book, there was a, an English vicar who quite accurately measured the speed of sound by firing off shotguns between two church steeples. He knew the exact distance between them, and so he was able to measure, you know, the time it took for sound to travel. Um, this, this was not a new thing. What was new and what was uh, made possible largely through the war was the technology that permitted manned flight to actually go supersonic. You know, the Germans had done it with uh, with rockets. They'd been doing it, you know, for years during the war with the V-2 rocket. Uh, bullets, you know, were, were known to be supersonic, you know, and hence the noise. And in fact, the X-1, the basic design is, is copied from a 50 caliber rifle shell. Um, so they knew about it. They just, they had to develop, you know, the, the structures, the aerodynamics and the power plant, you know, to get an aircraft with a man in it through uh, the speed of sound. We're speaking with Dan Hampton, retired United States Air Force Lieutenant Lieutenant Colonel and author of a number of best-selling books. The newest is Chasing the Demon, uh, which tells some untold tales from the efforts to break the sound barrier. Of course, Chuck Yeager is the name that comes to mind for most people who know anything about the story, even if they don't know the details. I won't get uh, too much into spoiling anything in the book, but Dan, you present some evidence that uh, maybe there was somebody else who did it, and maybe there were some, uh, well, kind of typical government reasons for not wanting that person to uh, get the credit for it. How surprised were you by what you learned in doing the research and the interviews and everything that you did for the book? Was was it a shock to you or had you heard about some of this stuff before? No, I heard about it. And people have been talking about this ever since 1947. I'm, I'm hardly the first one to, you know, to bring this up. And and I will point out that that Jaeger is officially credited with with this for good reason. He was the first one to officially be acknowledged as breaking uh, the sound barrier. There is anecdotal evidence that uh, a German, maybe two of them, did it during the war. But again, no proof. Uh, that's in, that's in fact how the book starts is with one of those cases. And then there is really more conclusive proof. But again undocumented as yet, uh, that George Welch, uh, uh, another uh, fighter pilot who was now working as a civilian test pilot, exceeded the speed of sound two weeks before Chuck Yeager did. And what I present in the book is uh, background on Welch. Remember, he was one of the two guys that got airborne at Pearl Harbor and, and fought the Japanese. And then he went on to, you know, to, fight, to fly a combat for about 18 months in the Pacific before he caught malaria and had to go home. So when you know about this guy, the type of person he was, and then you, you, you learn about the XP-86, obviously the prototype of the F-86, that he was testing, he was in the right place at the right time with exactly the right airplane. Why wouldn't he do this? Uh, he was well acquainted with, with sound barrier, knew what it was all about. 
And so, uh, you know, the evidence supports the conclusion that, in fact, he did, you know, nose the XP-86 over and a dive past the speed of sound. Now, the government wanted to keep it quiet because the Air Force had just become the Air Force. It had just broken off from the Navy, and the new secretary of the Air Force, a guy named Stuart Symington, wanted to hang his hat on something to show, hey, look, we really do need to be a separate service and therefore justify the huge funding you know, streams you're going to get us. Look, look at what we did. We just you know, went supersonic, first, first people to do it. So he basically told everybody else, including North American Aviation, that the Air Force would be first no matter what. So that's why it fell out the way that it did. And it's an interesting story. The details of which can be found in the book Chasing the Demon by Dan Hampton, retired United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, who we're speaking with right now. Of course, Chuck Yeager, one of the subjects of the book. A lot of people might not realize this. 95 years old. He's still around. Have you heard anything from Chuck himself or from his uh, his family in regards to the book, in regards to the fact that, you know, uh, whether Welch uh, actually was the first one or not? We communicated a couple times, and then I think his his second wife closed it down. She's done that with just about everybody in his life, as I understand it. Uh, his reply to all of this is, as it has been all these years, and and probably quite right. He says, "Show me the evidence," hmm. and you can't, you know, you can't really argue with that. I think that he knows this really happened. Uh, he would never admit to it though. And, you know, he's, he's built his life and his career on it. So I can't, I can't blame him there. And, you know, regardless of who broke it, it's important to realize these were all brave, talented guys who were taking chances that they didn't need to. My primary source of information uh, for a lot of this was Ken Schulstrom, who is 96, still very much alive. And he uh, was Chuck Yeager's boss. And he was actually offered the position first with the X-1 program, and he declined because he didn't believe in the rocket. He didn't believe uh, that, that that was the future of the Air Force, and he wanted to be the XP-86 uh, program manager once the Air Force took uh, possession of it. There's so much to this story that, you know, I remember learning about in school, but I've probably learned more in the last five, ten minutes that we've been talking about chasing the demon than I did in any of those things or any of the TV shows I watch or even maybe even some of the movies that that have been made about the subject. Dan Hampton's new book, Chasing the Demon, takes a deep dive into who actually broke the sound barrier. And of course... Those who lost their lives trying to, the anecdotes he mentioned about the possibility of World War II pilots uh, uh, breaking it during World War II. Uh, Dan, if people are interested in finding out more about the book and purchasing the book, where can they go to do so? Uh, Pretty much everywhere. There's Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon, of course, uh, local bookstores, bookstores have it. Uh, I love to hear from people. I, I get lots of great feedback, so... Uh, there's a HarperCollins uh, Facebook page uh, for me. Uh, feel free to, to get a hold of me with anything. It may take me a while to answer, but I always do. And, and as always, if you like the book, I certainly welcome the reviews, the Amazon reviews and Barnes & Noble reviews. So uh, feel free to contact me with, with any questions, and I, I hope everybody enjoys it. I sure learned a lot writing it. Dan, one last thing for you, and that is... There are veterans out there who might think that they have a great idea for a book, but they just don't know how to how to get started. They don't know what the process should be like for them. It can be a daunting process. What advice would you give for those aspiring veteran authors out there? 
it is it is daunting and it is not easy to break into. I would recommend you go to the reference section at at a at a at a Barnes and Noble, and there's a number of books on how to find a literary agent, which is what you're going to need to break into this, and the latest and greatest on on how to make uh, your your dream your idea uh, become reality. And then don't give up. I kept all 42 of my initial rejection letters. So, uh, you know, everybody goes through that. Don't ever give up. If you believe in yourself, you can make it happen. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 